Amen. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Hey, Cindy. Um, I'm Chris. Am I, am I loud? Like good loud or too loud? Too loud. Cool. I'm just going to keep talking. Oh, there we go. Is it better? Seems better. So like I said, I'm Chris. I'm on staff uh, with InterVarsity at Amherst College, and it's a privilege to get to speak to you from God's Word to this morning, today. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we are going through the book of 2 Timothy, and our sermon series is called Fired Up. And um, you also may know that this is Paul's last letter, writing to Timothy. We're pretty sure he's writing from a prison in Rome. We're pretty sure he was executed shortly thereafter. And uh, as we go along in the letter, you'll get the sense that Paul knows this is going to be his last letter. Toward the end of the book, he starts talking about his own life in the past tense. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And so Paul's writing to Timothy with this intense pastoral urgency, sort of downloading the last couple things you need to know. Sort of a last will and testament to Timothy, who's laboring in Ephesus, um, and if you've been with us, you also know that Paul's been calling Timothy into some difficult things. Paul's been telling him things like share in suffering, which is a ridiculous way to recruit someone. Come suffer with me. Dude's in prison. Um, or, yeah, fan into flame the gift that it's in you, and it's going to look like pain. It's going to look like suffering. So um, Timothy knows this is costly. Paul knows this is costly. And uh, so if you've been with us, you've been getting some of that costly charge, share in suffering, divest all of your hope from worldly things and place it in Jesus. Um, and today, I think we have from Paul some sort of a, like a mechanism for how to do that. Because those are things that we can't do. I don't, I don't have the strength to just jump into suffering. That's not something that excites me all the time. Um, and it's very painful. But, but Paul points to Timothy, uh, points for Timothy, points Timothy towards the place where Timothy's going to get his strength. Notice in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. There's strength for you, Timothy, and it's in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. If you've been around church, you know, grace is a uh, very common Christian word, sort of Christianese that we just say we don't really define. Another word that's paired with it often is mercy, and they're different. Um, Grace simply is just the unmerited favor of God. Uh, so to differentiate, mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Right? So when, when Jesus died for our sin, right, there's both mercy and grace displayed. God forgives our sin, which, which means we don't get what we deserve. We don't get separation from God because our sin is forgiven. That's mercy. But it's also grace because Jesus gives us his righteousness. So it's not just that we're forgiven. We're given a gift that we didn't earn, which is Jesus' righteousness. We're seen as righteous before God. So in, in, Christ, there's, in Christ's sacrifice, there's both mercy and grace. And then on a higher level, we didn't, need, we didn't deserve any of that, right? So all of Jesus' coming, incarnation, life, teachings, death, resurrection, all of that was an act of grace, right? Because we couldn't have earned that. So all of that was a display of the unearned favor of God. So there's both, but um, grace is just unmerited favor from God. And and Paul is saying to Timothy, let the unmerited favor of God strengthen you for his service in costly ways. And like I said, Paul has called Timothy to hard things. And Paul, in this text, is going to give three examples of really costly, selfless sacrifice for Jesus' sake. 
Um, it's three images. There's an image of the soldier, the athlete, and a farmer. And each is an example of costly obedience to Jesus, what it looks like to live um, in costly selfless devotion to Jesus. The first is as a soldier. So look, for, look with me in verse 3. Paul says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So imagine if you were at Trader Joe's or wherever you shop. You're shopping for groceries. And in walks a soldier in full military fatigues with a machine gun strapped to his back. And he starts to check out the assorted flowers. You realize something's wrong, right? Something's amiss. Either there's a war here and I, don't, I didn't know it, or this guy's very out of place. I think what Paul is pointing at is that soldiers operate with a different intensity level of urgency. They don't, they don't just go around civilian things normally. They don't casually peruse flower decorations because there's a war that they're a part of. And, and Paul is calling us to the same intensity, focus, and urgency that comes with being a soldier. A soldier whose aim is to please their commanding officer, the one who enlisted him. As Christians, we're called to the same radical single-mindedness that's evident in soldiers who want to please their enlisting officer. Remember Paul's story, right? So we talk a lot about how Paul's an awesome example, great apostle, dude planted a lot of churches, wrote most of the New Testament. Cool dude. We forget Paul was an enemy of the church, an enemy of Jesus. This guy, he was killing Christians. His job, his role, was to go around looking for Christians to kill them. And Paul approved of and participated in the mass murder of Christians. And then something happened, right? You know this story. Paul is on the way to Damascus so that he might find Christians to kill them. And Jesus shows up in a blinding light. Paul can't see for three days. He doesn't eat. And Jesus says, out of the light, says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, Saul, you've been messing up. You're doing this wrong. You have to imagine Saul in that moment knows his sin, right? The God of creation, I've been persecuting him and his people. But in that moment, Paul's also given the opportunity to be reconciled, to be forgiven. So Paul repents in those three days where he's blind and can't eat. And then God sends a Christian, Ananias, to come to Paul to lay hands on him. And the words out of Ananias' mouth are, Brother Saul, Jesus sent me. So Paul's reconciled, despite his sin, Paul's reconciled to God and reconciled to community out of the grace of God. And from that moment on, it's like Paul is set on fire. Something flips in Paul's heart. And I'm not just projecting that onto the story. You can see it in Paul's writings. In Acts 20, when Paul's departure to the, um, to the church, in the church in Ephesus, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to, m- to myself at all. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I'm about. My life is for that. That's the one thing. In Philippians 3, 13 and 15, Paul says, I do not consider that I've made it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing. That's what I'm about. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul is talking about how he's out of his mind. And he, realized, he says, I realize I seem out of my mind. But you have to understand it's because the power of Christ, Christ's love compels me. Christ's love is controlling me, some translations say. Christ's love is constraining me. I'm totally hemmed in and motivated by Christ's love, and I know it looks crazy, but this is what I'm about. This is my thing. Paul talks like that because he's had a radical encounter with the living Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if you've had a moment or a season of life-changing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Where Jesus shows up to you in your sin. Paul's on his way to do his thing, to kill Christians. Where Jesus shows up to him and the grace of God to forgive his sin and to restore him to God and to Christian community is so great that he says, this is better than anything else. I'm going to live for this forever. Have you had a moment like that? Where your heart is just captured by the grace of, of Jesus? When in all the noise and all the things you could be doing, there's a moment where there's just clarity. Oh, this is the thing. This is the one thing I need to give my life to. Paul's not talking about a heart with divided affection, right? A soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs because his aim is to please his commanding officer. Paul's one goal is to please him. Simply put, you and I won't have a single-minded obedience to Jesus until we believe that God is better than anything the world has to offer. We just won't. We'll, we can come to church. Right? We can fake it. You might even be able to muster the strength to refrain from sinning sometimes. You might muster the strength to pray, even if you don't want to the most. But until you have an encounter with God that says, this is better than anything else, you're, you're going to do the thing that you want to do most. So until the grace of God breaks in in such a way that you say, this is better than anything else, we're not going to have totally sold out affection for Jesus. We need an encounter with the risen God and with his grace that's so compelling that all of our other affections are subordinated to the one desire to know him, to please him, to please our commander. So we can say like the psalmist in Psalm 27, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on his beauty. If we're honest, the church, the American churches that I've been in have not prepared us for this kind of Christianity, this sold-out, single-minded devotion. We think of Christianity as like a hobby, or like a little extra something you do on Sunday. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says good soldiers don't get entangled with civilian affairs, and the word that he uses in civilian affairs is very commonplace. It's sort of just like market activity or regular stuff. The point is that Paul's not condemning regular stuff. Paul's not condemning buying flowers at Trader Joe's. Buying flowers at Trader Joe's is a great idea. Those things aren't bad. What's bad is the entanglement because they hinder the warfare right? So Paul's saying, you have to, when you have a sold-out, single-minded devotion to Jesus, everything else is subordinated. So you start looking at normal things, even good things, and valuing them insofar as they help you with the warfare against sin in your life and bringing Jesus' kingdom. So, well, one commentator says it like this, says, let us rid ourselves of anything and everything which would hinder our holy warfare. Have you read about the, uh, the American war effort on the home front during World War II? It's outrageous. 
the propaganda was so convincing that Americans at home saw themselves as part of the war effort, the war machine that, that helped the soldiers win the battle. And they, they did make a difference. So things like victory gardens, where instead of buying groceries, you grew your own food to save food and to be able to send extra food to the soldiers. Victory gardens planted by civilians in their backyards accounted for 40% of the produce of America during that time because people were so bought in. Everything we can do to make this war effort possible. The German U-boat started to sink American ships that were on the eastern coast. And we discovered that they were able to see where the ships were because our cities were backlighting the ships. So the German boats would look toward the coast and see a brightly lit city with a shadow of a boat and say, oh, that's the boat. And then they'd be able to sink the boat. And once we discovered that, civilians volunteered. I will be on the patrol to make sure that all of the lights in the city are off after a certain time. Whole cities practiced blackouts to protect themselves from harm. And if you didn't turn off all your lights, you bought thick blackout curtains to block out the light. There's nothing wrong with light, right? Just to make the point, there's nothing wrong with light. Light's great. You should be able to light your house. But when there's a war on, you look at normal things, and you're willing to sacrifice them for the cause, right? So in our world, there's nothing wrong with Netflix. There's nothing wrong with Facebook. They're great. They're great tools. But we cannot become entangled, right? Are you, are you willing or would you sacrifice those things if it meant that you would know Jesus better? Would you radically reduce your time strategically, intentionally, radically reduce your time on Netflix and Facebook if it meant that you could spend more time in prayer? And if not, we need to deal with some entanglement, with civilian stuff, with regular things. Would you reduce your time on those things if it meant that you might learn a new skill, develop a new skill that God might use to bring glory to his name? if you might know him better, is, is, our only please, if our only, is our only aim to please our commanding officer? Or are we entangled? We need the goodness of God and the grace of God to fully capture our heart so that we can be strengthened to live like soldiers in wartime. See how grace strengthens you for, for single-minded focus towards an aim? We need to see that, that God in his grace is so attractive that everything else is subordinated to him. Because, and the reason why it's better is because everything else in the world, you have to die to get it, right? You have to lay down your life to, to achieve worldly success. You have to spend the hours, right, to earn an A in your class. But Jesus already laid down his life so that you might know him. He paid the price already. Grace and the grace of God is the only thing like that in the world. It already died. Jesus already died to purchase you that you might know him. It's better than anything the world has to offer. And it's worthy of our single-minded, wholehearted obedience or devotion. So grace strengthens us to strive with single-minded devotion like soldiers in wartime. That's the first way that grace strengthens us using Paul's image. Like soldiers in warfare. The second image that Paul gives us of selfless, costly devotion to Jesus is the athlete. I'm in verse 5 now. It's, Paul says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Simply, I think Paul is just saying we have to compete according to the rules. We have to be obedient. And we don't make the rules. Jesus does. Jesus tells us how to act, and we have to follow his directions. And notice Paul knows that this is an example of costly obedience. It's in a list with being a soldier in war and being a farmer who's working hard in the field every day. Following Jesus is tough. It's super hard to do. 
I'm not strong enough to be obedient to Jesus every day, and I need God's grace to strengthen me for that. It's very difficult. And, and the, it's also true that we don't often think of grace as being the thing that strengthens us for obedience, right? It's a common question, not just among new believers, but among tenured believers, older believers. Um, if Jesus died for my sin, right, if there's no price, if there's no penalty, I'm freed from the penalty of my sin, why do I need to strive for holiness? Why do I need to continue to fight sin? What's the point? And I actually think it's a really good question. Um, don't, if, you, if that's a question of yours, don't condemn yourself for the question. It means that you have rightly understood part of what it means to be a Christian. Paul, in, in Romans 5, is talking about how the righteousness of God has been given to us freely, that the, the penalty of sin has been canceled. He anticipates that reaction, because in chapter 6, the first line is, so should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, No. But the point is that the objection is still there. Paul knows that you're going to go there if you rightly understand Romans 5. He explains his logic in verse 6. No, if we're dead to sin, how can we continue living in sin? I recommend Romans 6. It's great. You should go read it. But that's not really what I'm talking about. The point is, what is the point? Um, oh, yeah, we don't often think of grace as motivating obedience. And, that, and it's true that God's acceptance of us is not contingent on our obedience. It's true that, that God won't love you less if you sin. On the flip side, God won't love you more if you don't sin. God's love and blessing cannot be coerced. It's not something that we earn. And do you see how if his favor, if his favor and blessing were contingent on our obedience, we would have some leverage on God? We get to make some demands on God, and actually, practically, we operate sometimes like this. We say, if I, if I do X, God, you have to do Y. God, I promise I'll do this as long as you do this. Or if I pray six times for this thing, God, you've got to answer me. Or I know I sin like that, but I went to church, so I'm good. God doesn't work like that. We can't have God in our pocket like that. The truth is that some of our churches that we've grown up in have preached that gospel, uh, where we've, we've like projected this this worldly meritocracy idea on God where if we do the right things, we get blessings from God, but that is not the gospel. In fact, righteousness that comes by grace through faith in the risen Lord Jesus who gives us his righteousness, that gospel is the end of religion. There's no, there's no ritual that we can do that makes us right with God. There's no way we can evoke God's favor. There's no system that we can perform that makes God love us more or less or makes God act on our behalf God's favor is totally undeserved, totally unearned, totally freely given. He can't be manipulated. Which means that when God pours out his grace on us, unmerited, there are no terms for our surrender. The only response is to lay down our lives without terms, no terms, his terms. So oftentimes we, we ask the question, like, what is the minimum that I need to do in order to be in heaven? And if you're a Christian, the truth is if you confess with your heart and believe in your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But that's the wrong question to ask. The right question is, in light of what God has done for me, in light of the fact that he has purchased my soul, Jesus, how do you want me to live? That's the right question. And we will know that God's ridiculous grace has taken root in our heart when we start to want to live in obedience to him. 
when we start to walk in obedience to his command. You see, grace makes us strong for obedience because we aren't motivated by fear. We aren't motivated by guilt. We aren't motivated by like, worry that we're going to lose God's favor. God has already approved of us if we're in Christ. And so our obedience is motivated by love, by a total surrender to the lover of our souls. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. There's strength in the declaration, nothing I could ever do could ever pay back God for my sin. Nothing I could ever do could ever pay back what God has done for me in Christ to make me righteous. And so I'm going to lay down my life in in total obedience to whatever he says. God, I know I couldn't earn your favor, but you've given it to me, so I'm yours. See, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm loved. The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I, I obey. Our obedience is motivated by God's grace. Grace strengthens us for obedience. And I don't know about you, but just filling out this athlete metaphor. I don't want to be on the bench. I don't want to just watch while the kingdom of God breaks into the world. I want to learn how to operate in obedience with him so that I could be used. I want my life to be fruitful for his service. The only response to this ridiculous grace, the only wise response, is unconditional surrender on God's terms. So grace strengthens us to walk in obedience in response to God's love for us. So grace strengthens us to have a single-minded devotion to Jesus like a soldier in combat wanting to please our commanding officer. And grace strengthens us because, because we are accepted, we obey. Grace strengthens us towards obedience to God's commands, helps us play by the rules like an athlete. And then this third picture that, God, that Paul gives is of the image of a hardworking farmer laboring in the fields. Verse 6 says, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I love this image. And uh, it's not because I know anything about farming. In fact, I don't know anything about farming. Some of y'all are farmers, maybe, and know a lot more about farming. The only thing I really know about farming is that it's really hard. And that's what Paul's getting at. There's no such thing as a lazy, far- a lazy farmer. You can't, you can't d- be a lazy farmer because it's hard work to produce food from the ground. And it takes day in, in season, out of season, up before the sun, long hours of labor to make it happen. Especially in this culture, right? Paul's writing in a time when there's no mechanized farming equipment. There's no combine harvesters. But the thing about this metaphor that I really love is, is if you ask a farmer whether she wants to be up in the morning plowing, there's a sense in which, like, no, that's horrible. I want to be in bed. But there's another sense in which the answer is absolutely yes. I want to be doing this. So the best way I know how to illustrate it is from my own experience. So training for football at Amherst College for me is miserable. It was horrible. And I remember specifically April 2nd, 2015, it had snowed the night before, and there were like two or three inches of snow, and I was trudging through the snow with my teammates to go to run sprints at like 5.45 a.m., miserably cold, and I knew when I get there, the coach is going to make me run until I feel sick. It's going to be horrible. And if you'd ask me in that moment, do you want to be doing this? There's a sense in which, of course, no. This is terrible. 
But there's another very real sense in which I was there by my own volition. I wanted to be there. And the reason is that I knew the season was coming. And I wanted to be ready for it. And I wanted to win when we got to the season. Another, if you ask a pregnant woman, do you want to go through the pain of childbirth? No. But in another sense, yes. Because life is going to come from this. So I'm willing to suffer through this knowing that there's hope. Because life is coming. Guys, we are, we are living in the midst of longing for a kingdom that is surely coming. Even now, it's on his way. Jesus said before he left, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. We get to be with him forever. There's coming a day when the king of creation is going to break through the clouds and be with us forever. The one who died to purchase us. We get to spend eternity with him. This new city, this new Jerusalem that he's been building for us is going to descend from heaven like a dazzling jewel. And we're going to get to dwell in it with him forever. The harvest season is coming. And until that day, we get to work for him, our savior and lover of our souls. We get to work for him and his purposes in this world, in his world. See, costly obedience that Paul is talking about is not simply a matter of delayed gratification. It's, it's not, the Christian life is not, I'll do bad, hard things now so that I can do good things later. It's not foregoing one marshmallow now for a thousand marshmallows in heaven. That's not what this is. There's a sense in which when you know the end of the story and how good it's going to be, it is a joy now to labor for that kingdom. It is the happy, joyful choice to be obedient to Jesus, knowing that his kingdom is coming. Can you, can you picture the kingdom? How often do we think about it? Not often enough. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, this essay or sermon, I don't know, it's hard to tell with him, uh, it's called Heaven is a World of Love, and it's amazing, I commend it to you. In it, he has these word pictures that he uses to describe heaven are ridiculous. Um, but one of my favorites is he describes um, seeing the slain lamb, the face of Jesus, radiant like the sun. The Bible says that, that God dwells in unapproachable light. So that kind of like radiant, brilliant sun radiating from the face of our Savior and all the saints gathered around him, the sun, like flowers, receiving his glory like photosynthesizing, receiving our energy from the warmth of his face. And then as, as flowers, emitting an odor of praise into the throne room as we're growing and glorifying him. And imagine the scene of all of us being around the sun, receiving his glory, emitting an odor of praise, and all of us sort of being bathed in the odor of each other's praises. It's an amazing image. Imagine a world where you get to work in exactly the way that you were made, and it doesn't feel like toil. It's totally productive. And all around you are people who are totally brimming with happiness. Couldn't be happier. And every day getting more and more happy. No posturing, no competition, only love. Fully reconciled to God and to one another. That day is coming. And I actually think there's a sense in which, like the farmer, our joy in the labor will be proportional to our joy in the longing for that kingdom. The more we long for and hope in that kingdom, the more joy we'll find now in laboring to bring it here. 
in laboring for his purposes. Our joyful anticipation of reunion with the Lord of the harvest will inspire joyful work in his harvest now. We're going to be with him. So we work hard because the harvest is coming. And it's more than just a harvest in God's story. It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're going to be united to Jesus. So last Thursday, I was with students on campus, and we'd plan an outreach event, meaning that um, students were going to be tasked with doing outreach in real time. We're going to go out on campus. And I think some of our students knew that, so we had really low attendance. Uh, We had had like two students come. And I know for those of you who didn't come, there was a conflict on campus. But we had had two students, and uh, we knew we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to be trained in the task of like bringing conversations awkwardly to Jesus and the gospel, and then inviting a response. Do you want to follow Jesus? To people, some of whom, have, to, to people, some of whom who had never heard the gospel before. So this is a daunting thing, really scary. In fact, we show up, I'm really scared. I'm thinking like, why, why did I plan this event? What have I gotten myself into? But now I'm helping lead it, so I can't back out, you know? And, and the rest of the group, we're all varying levels of terrified. And looking at each other's eyes, thinking like, this is really scary. We're not ready to do this. And uh, one of my friends was there, Jodine was there, and Jodine can pray. And so Jodine prayed for us, and we're feeling a little bit encouraged. The nerves didn't go away. Still a scary thing. But what happened was our perspective shifted in her prayer. And we realized, and we even said this afterwards, or uh, after she prayed, before we went out, reminding each other, this is God's world. God made all these people. And God made us, and God died for us, and God gave us this ministry of reconciliation, this message of hope to the world. Worst case scenario, they don't like us. But best case scenario, we might see the Lord of the harvest bring life tonight. And so that, that kind of perspective, it didn't take away the nerves, but see, it, it enabled us to labor with joy, even though we were scared, and even though it was hard. It was a great night. The steady paid-for, reliable grace of God strengthens us to live in this world in the meantime as we long for the future kingdom because we have a surely coming king. He's coming back. God's grace strengthens us to be future-oriented laborers because we have a future worth hoping for, worth longing for. So God's grace strengthens us to single-minded devotion Strengthens us towards obedience. Strengthens us for future-oriented labor. So the invitation is to come to the source of grace that will make you strong. His grace is better than anything the world has to offer, and you should give your whole heart to it. His grace is free and purchased, and you need to respond to it in obedience. And his grace is coming even now. God has weaved us into a story that's not ours. A story that he started writing when he started creation. To make a people for himself. And you and I, if we're in Christ, this has become our story, though we didn't deserve it, though we might not, we wouldn't have even chosen it. By grace, he has weaved us into a story that culminates in a glorious future, more glorious than we could ever imagine. Let that truth strengthen you to work and to love him even now. 
do you see how if, if we aren't doing these things, if we, if we aren't living in single-minded devotion, if we aren't being obedient to Jesus, if we aren't longing for his kingdom and laboring for it to come, it's, it's because we haven't truly or really or deeply enough grasped the grace of God. Because grace strengthens us to do those things. But the truth is, day-to-day, it's hard to stay strong in grace. You and I forget. We need reminders all the time of God's grace. We're porous, as it were, with grace. It just drips through us. We forget it. In Psalm, Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13, the psalmist says, What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? Great question. What can I offer in response to God's grace and goodness to me? And the, the answer that he gives is, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The picture being, if, as God is pouring out his grace, there's nothing we can do to repay him. All we can do, the right posture, is to take a cup and say, fill this one too. More of that. God, more grace. I want, I want more of it. I have a friend who um, drinks a lot of milk. Drinks milk all the time. And that, that sounds like an exaggeration. I mean it literally. He drinks milk all of the time. He carries around milk wherever he goes. Uh, and it sounds insane, but the reason is he's a bodybuilder. He wants to get huge. He wants to get swole. And this, he's a hard gainer. Well, bodybuilder is called a hard gainer, so it's hard for him to gain weight. It's hard for him to build muscle. But like four years ago, he started this regimen of, of drinking milk, and he's gained like 45 pounds of muscle. And he's getting strong. It's because he's intentional about constantly drinking milk. T- to the extent that it's like really weird. He, if he's going on a trip and we've been on little retreats with him, he packs suitcases of milk so that he always has it with him. That's what we're supposed to do. Not about milk, but about grace. Make provision for yourself to constantly have a drip of grace, as it were. Always being filled. Always taking fresh sips. Always saying to God, here's my cup. Lord, more grace, please. Constantly. Even making provision. If you know you're going to go on a trip where it might be hard to be nourished by grace, what, what steps can you put in your life proactively so that God can strengthen you with his grace? Because we forget we're hard gainers. We need a constant flow of grace. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Let us make daily use of our riches, taking from him the supply of all we need with as much boldness as men take money from their own purse. Taking from him the supply of all we need with as much boldness as men take money from their own purse. It's ours in Christ Jesus. He has given us grace upon grace. It is the task of growing in strength as a Christian to make use of every resource to pour grace into your heart. It's already yours. It's already purchased. Christ has done everything necessary that we might be strong. We just need constant reminders of what he's done. So we do communion out of that posture. We need constant reminders of what he's done. That's why at Mercy House we take communion every week. Because on the night that Jesus died, he took bread and broke it and gave, his, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to pour out my life in grace for you. And he commanded us, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to forgive your sins. And you need to do this in remembrance of me. You know, Jesus also said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of this vine until that day. 
that day when he comes back, you know, Jesus is even now abstaining from wine until he gets to drink it with you. There's a party that's coming. The wedding feast of the Lamb is coming, and you're invited. And Jesus is going to uncork the wine and pour glasses for us, and we're going to sit around and talk about his, his grace, his goodness, the salvation that he's offered, the ways that we've seen him work. In a trillion years, we'll still be celebrating his grace. So today, we're going to take communion as recognition that Jesus has done everything necessary for us to know him and to be strengthened to walk with him day to day. And we're also going to take communion looking forward to that day when we drink wine with Jesus and you and I gather around the sun and sing his praises drinking his wine. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for the price that you've paid that we might know you, that we might be reconciled to you and reconciled to each other in a community that sings your praise. God, strengthen us by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that we could walk in obedience because we want to love you, Lord. We need your help. So God, we, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you love us. We pray that you would um, use this bread and the cup, Lord, use the worship, use this community to strengthen us to walk in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 